Hello everybody and welcome back to another spoiler review with me aboard a prince. It's been a while since I've done one of these. I'm back in action now. I'll be catching up on all the books and I want to catch on up on this one which I should have probably done a video on about three or four months ago. Dark City by Chris Wright, the latest and it seems, and no spoilers, last book in the Vaults of Terror series. And for those of you who haven't been paying attention, the Vaults of Terror series has been running in tandem to an extent. They're slightly, uh, they, they kind of catch up with each other here. Uh, the other series being, of course, the Watchers of the Throne, uh, where the custodians are involved and uh, the, the rebirth of the Sisters of Silence, the coming of Gilliman, uh, various uh, nefarious plots and schemes and so on. They managed to defeat a... I'm not doing a review on that. I recommend you read that and you read this. They're sort of in tandem. They cover, I think they cover some of the same, the arcs, Inquisitor arcs characters in both, but they're definitely covering the same sort of periods. On Terror, this birth of the Great Rift, the fall of Cadia, the return of Gilliman, and the anarchy and events that all unfold from these events. Now, this is the, this book now lines up with the, kind of the start, or just, I don't know where it would be with the, with the uh, Watchers of the Throne, but, they're around the same area, but this one, obviously, this series, this series starts off slightly before the events of all that, and is mostly concerned with essential and big spoilers, obviously, for those of you who don't know. And I'll talk about it in more of a general sense and what the implications are with it, with the law, rather than a chapter by chapter sort of analysis, because I'm not really good at that sort of thing. So, this book mostly concerns Inquisitor Krell's investigations into an attempt by a cabal of inquisitorial agents. Uh, High Lords and various other different wings of the Imperium to get a Dark Eldar. Uh, it starts off this way anyway. This is as far as he understands the plot to an its, its extent. To get the Dark Eldar or a Dark Eldar homunculus in particular to repair the Golden Throne, which we have known since 3rd edition is broken and cannot be repaired. Which is part of the law, right? The old third edition or fourth edition rule book, uh, the one where the Dark Eldar were brought into the universe. They didn't exist before. That edition was where we first got the information in the rule book that, uh, yeah, the Emperor's throne is, the Golden Throne is broken. And this is an attempt by that group of people to secretly bring an Eldar in because they can't fix it. They've tried everything. They can't do it. And they don't know if it's got a year or 500 years. They don't know. All they know is it's broke and eventually it's going to shut down. So this is where the first book starts off with our man Krell trying to figure out what's going on, how to stop it. They manage to kill the homunculus, or at least they think they do, of course, because we all know it's very hard to kill Dark Eldar, particularly powerful Dark Eldar people, because the Dark Eldar have the ability to unwind souls, to re-spin souls, basically. You can, they'll chop their finger off sometimes and uh, <laughs> leave it in Kimura, and if they die, they'll regrow themselves. It's a whole thing, and I don't want to go into details, but it's a cool concept. It's been covered in the Dark Eldar series by Andy Chambers. It's been covered by, in the Fabius Ball series by Josh Reynolds, and it's good that Chris Wright knows all this, and you can tell, and this is why he's such a good writer as well. I'll just get this out of the way before we go on anymore. Chris Wright is probably the best writer that GW have working for them right now. He is the most skilled. He is the most. He has the most craft. 
I don't know what his education is, but I'm guessing he's got like a very he's got a master's in English literature or something like that. Uh, his grasp of history, his grasp of the law in general, but his grasp of history, his grasp of philosophy, his grasp of religious stuff, and just his ability to make humans, uh, to make characters. Um, hum, appear human and interact with each other in a proper way. Like there's some author, there's some people working at GW. I'm not naming any names, but they do not know how to write. Terrible, long-winded, not funny, stupid, played out. Like a smarmy voice is coming at me, telling me I hate it. I fucking hate it. Chris Ray isn't like that. Chris Ray is actually a good writer. Now I would say Guy Haley is a very, very, very close second. Uh, for different reasons. Guy Haley is a very imaginative person, so on. But Chris Wright is just more skilled than Guy Haley, I have to say. And I don't think anyone would disagree with me on that, like in a, in a literary sense. He is more skilled than Guy Haley. But I think Guy Haley's got a... Guy Haley's a machine. The amount he churns out makes up for any deficiencies in his writing ability. And they, and they are subtle. They, don't, they trust the reader to not be a moron. Which I hate reading stories like that, like where it's just all explained to you. Or where the characters make stupid decisions and act like morons, even though they're a Primark. So, <laughs> I really hated that Alfarius book. So, this was a breath of fresh air to get to. So good. Every, every page was a wonder to read. Every, everything was amazing. I got the audiobook version. A fantastic reading. Brilliant. Just brilliant across the, across the, across the board. And the reasons why was it expands the universe, but also keeps everything and all the characters acting in universe logic. And it's a bit of a tragic ending as well. So the second book, after they foil this initial attempt to get the homunculus into the Emperor's Palace, the second book is the aftermath of that, where the powers that be try to get rid of, Cal of Krell and uh, Spinoza, his interrogator. And, and it has an amazing scene where they attack the... This, this inquisitorial fortress he controls. I don't know if the name of the place is a reference to something. I don't know. I'm, maybe that's just gone over my head completely. But they attack this fortress and it's got one of the... And I really started to like Spinoza in this. Where she she presses the button and just gasses everybody in the fortress and kills everybody outside of this secure room because it's the only way to survive. Uh, her own people as well. Big, big moments. Lots of drama around it fantastic but the other bit was them going to the astronomican and we see the moment where the astronomican dies gets gutted cuts out and that's just a really powerful moment so then we go into this third book now and Krell is on the chase still he's gone on the run looking for people and this is where Chris Wright shows his cleverness and also I think is a is a is a sticking his two fingers up to the Beast Arises series <laughs> right so this is what happens okay he goes uh, looking for the current Fabricator General. In the current timeline of things in 40k, this is the last Fabricator General, and he's called Frank. So, and he's pretty cool as well. So, um, Krell go, ends up on Luna. And there's a whole thing with Spinoza and his, his retinue are trying to find him. And the reason is he's got the reason he's disappeared as well is because he's dying. Obviously, we all know this from the other previous books. He's old, he's dying, but he's also been infected by the Dark Eldar blood. And because of Dark Eldar, 
magic science thing, whatever, blah, blah, blah. He started to get a few of the memories and stuff of Dark Elder. It's explained better in the book, but that's basically what's happening. So he is going to try and find a portal, basically. And they go looking for him as well. And there's a number of things because the Inquisition are still sending people to find out what's going on because some of them don't actually know what's going on with the the breaking down of the it's it's like the people who were trying to repair the golden throne have kept this all secret from everybody else so all they know is Kral knows something there's some kind of civil war occurring anyway it all happens at the same time as the the fall of Cadia happens and the Astronomican goes out and obviously basically it feels like the end of days for everybody and later on they will have the you know, the demonic invasion of the Imperial Palace and Gilliman's return and so on, which comes at some point around the end of this book. So they're sending people after Krell and his guys, Spinoza and everything, to find out what's going on. And Spinoza and the gang are trying to find where Krell's disappeared to. And she's kind of become the Inquisitor, basically, because Krell's out of it and disappeared and left them all on it and gone off on his own. So eventually they, they start in towards Mars, but they get turned back and they end up on Luna and they join forces with another Inquisitor and they head towards, and this is where the cleverness comes in. This is all bait. I'm just giving you the basic, the gist. They head towards the portal where Gilliman emerges from. Now he doesn't emerge from there. Don't worry. It's not like it slipped in, but this is a fantastic thing, right? Because what are the big issues for me? with the Beast of Rises series, and the reason why I couldn't carry on reading it anymore, because it was awful, was when a bunch of Harlequins jump out in the Imperial Palace and start dancing around and running around in the throne room, right? They're right there. And it's like, are you telling me? <laughs> the Emperor, who went to all that trouble to make the Eternity Gate and all that stuff, there was just a, there was just a warp gate. There was, the, <laughs> was just a, a webway portal down, down the corridor. It doesn't make sense at all. Ruin the series to me. Utterly breaks the law of the universe. So, the question is, how did that one stay on, on Luna, on the moon, for so long? Well, this is where the cleverness of Chris Rake comes through. And putting and making sense of the universe. Because if, they, if this hadn't happened in his story, right? What I'm going to explain now. Then Gilliman wouldn't have been able to use that portal to come to Luna in his whole arc of the um, the fall of Cadia thing, you know, where he he goes into the... I mean, that's a bit of a mess anyway, story-wise, but just take it as read that it happened and it's the law. They come, his little crusade appears on the moon, Magnus follows and they have a big battle and so on. That's the law, right? And then he gets transported back to the Emperor and he meets the Emperor. So what happens is, before all that happens, that portal is locked up, cemented shut, right? due to some events that are mentioned in the other concurrent book series, or the, the series that's happening, that he's writing at the same time, but it's happening after, covering some different characters, where the, the Sisters of Silence and the... Um, what are they called? The, it's been a while since I read that series, but there's a bunch of people, the, the, the Gene rights and stuff like this, who used to run... They had, like, an empire on the moon and so on. They were a separate power, and the Emperor defeated them and took them over. But... They shut down a warp gate that was on there, a webway portal that was on the moon, and locked it, sealed it completely. Which is fine, that's fine, that makes sense, that because I almost got it, like, that was another issue for me, with the whole Gilliman coming through the warp portal, I'm like, oh, another fucking warp portal, great, they're just everywhere, 
So what was the Empress messing about with the Eternity Gate for? So much, you know? Because that's there, right? <laughs> like, you could have just used the secure one, right? It, it gives an explanation of why that wasn't used. The Emperor didn't know about it, or he didn't know how to unlock it, or whatever. And it also explains why he ended up going, you know, before the Great Crusade, why he ended up travelling all the way to that planet, the one with the knights on it, where they meet that Perpetual. And another thing, Perpetuals. Perpetuals are overdone, right? They were a mistake. You should have just had John Grammaticus in that one novel as just a quirky sort of side character that popped up and an interesting thing and then carried on with the rest of the lore. They never should have slipped it. I blame Dan Abbott for that. He liked the Perpetuals idea too much, you know. Oh, Alanius Pius. Oh, look at this. Oh, look at this. You know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to hint at the Iliad. Oh, no, no. Too much, lads. You went too far. I, I, I hear they're all dying, though. I hear they're all dying, which is good. But uh, it should have just been John Grammaticus in a one-off as an interesting side thing. They never should have had all these other characters. Because it ends up with this chick you got there who's got a Paddington Bear picture books or whatever the fuck and talking to people and saying, okay, and all this sort of thing. Like, it's clever. It's annoying. It's stupid. I don't like it. Too late now, though. That's the canon. That's the law. They've slipped in these perpetuals. But yeah, that would explain why the Emperor had to go to the great lengths to find an active warp portal uh, or a webway portal. So what happens is... Frank and all these guys, they they figure out, with the help of the Dark Eldar, who they made a deal with, that there is this uh, blocked spur of the webway, this gate, that can be opened up with their special knowledge. And they do. So then they can travel freely between the webway and so on. And that's what happens. So, what I, so then, Frank and the Mechanicum, they enter the webway in order to conduct the last the stages of the negotiation, to exchange schematics and information to work on this problem together with the Dark Eldar. And obviously, that's not a good idea. <laughs> that's not a good idea. So in the end, the custodians show up as well because they realize the seriousness of the situation. And they come and help. They come at the request of, of Krell. And they all enter the webway together. And I'm just like running through this because I want to just talk about the, the, the big sort of deal from this. They basically end up speaking to Frank, who's this, the, the ultimate tech priest. He's just a building that's a machine at this point. And he's got like a little puppet outside that speaks for him. But the idea is that the, the deal that the Mechanicum and, you know, this cabal, anyway, him representing this cabal of interested parties who want to repair the Golden Throne, they are so desperate that they will deal with the Dark Elder. And in their eyes, what they understand is the Dark Elder want to help humanity because if humanity dies out, they'll be next. And it destroys their feed, you know, they, they, they live off pain and humans are the most prosperous species out there. The most useful for their needs of causing pain and leeching off them and so on. But the problem is for them, well, if the, if the Emperor goes, then humanity as a, as, a, as a force will disappear. And at the moment, they're happy with the status quo of feeding on humanity, raiding them, and so on. They'd rather see that continue than the final victory of the gods of chaos or something like that, the warp, the warp spilling into reality. And that's understandable. So they agree to help them in return, obviously, for a payment, which is 19 billion souls in this uh, region of space, that the Imperium is gonna give them the information to bypass the defenses from these hive worlds and so on. And the Dark Eldar are just gonna have a feeding frenzy and capture all these souls. And in return, the Dark Elder will use their knowledge to help them repair the Golden Throne. Because as they say, the Golden Throne isn't one technology. It's not like the Emperor came up with a human technology. It's a technology that's based on the pilfered 
various bits of technology from all around the universe, from all around the galaxy, captured by the Emperor during the Great Crusade, to craft this agglomeration of different things into the Golden Throne. Now, the Dark Eldar are lying, of course, <laughs> but they do a convincing lie. And you have a great conversation between Cal and this um, this uh, homunculus who he killed on Terra and has reborn himself, where they talk about Bach and all this, and he has to explain to, to <laughs> he explains to Cal that when he was younger, that they used to look at, he, he was one of those who was interested in Earth as a curiosity, he used to just observe humanity, before they went full, you know, Hellraiser levels of uh, nutty. He told me, I only just realised the other day recently, um, I never thought about it before ever, but I only just realised that like the Dark Eldar is just basically Eldar Hellraiser, I didn't think about that for a <laughs> It never occurred to me. And then I saw a meme the other day with Hellraiser and it suddenly struck me. I'm like, oh shit, the, the Eldar are literally just... It's just Hellraiser. That's the whole... <laughs> that's the gimmick. <laughs> Which makes sense, I guess. Uh... <laughs> so, back to the story. But they have a great discussion about, like, humanity and what it means to exist and the Dark Eldar's role and humanity's role in the galaxy and so on. Excellent moments. Uh, but he... Crowell isn't convinced. Because he knows there's something messed up going on here. Because he's got a little little bit of the uh, homunculus in him. Subconsciously. So he understands that something's wrong. This isn't going to be a straight deal. So what happens is basically uh, he uses this mirror of the Dark Eldar. And he's able to get a vision of what's occurring in Kimura on the In the webway and so on. And basically what's happening is, as we know from the birth of the Great Rift. Where... Astrobol Vect is uh, basically assailed by demonic forces, the whole of Kamora is, uh, because there's a massive disjunction. And for you, those of you who don't know what a disjunction is, Kamora isn't exactly stable fully within the webway, it's this pocket reality within the webway, where this the impossible city, the dark city, obviously, exists. Uh, but it isn't completely stable. It's got a lot of wards and so on, but every now and again, just because the powers of the war become too powerful or, you know, something breaks down somewhere, the, a disjunction will happen where basically the pocket reality that it exists in uh, starts to fall apart and it has to be repaired quickly. And in the meantime, demons will come through and it also means that some parts of Kimura have, have fully fallen to the warp and are full of demons and so on and they get shut off and so on. Sometimes when there's loads of Dark Eldar in there, they'll just shut it off, you know, like, um, like a sinking ship, you know. They'll, they'll lock off that part of the ship. It doesn't matter if anyone's in there to stop the ship sinking. They're, they're, they're all done for. So things like that, right? That, that's what normally happens. Now, a big obviously, with the birth of the Great Rift and everything, the changing of the sort of rules of the universe, the it has affected the webway and so affected Kimura, and it's caused one of the biggest disjunctions ever to occur since probably the fall of the, the Eldar originally. And the Dark Eldar are fighting desperately to hold back the warp, uh, the demonic legions, the legions of Selenesh predominantly, but everybody's getting involved. And it's like, you know, possibly the end of the Dark Eldar race. Now, what they're doing is they've been lying to the Imperial representatives using the information that the Mechanicum have been giving them to build their own version of the Golden Throne. Yeah. Now, the problem is, obviously... The Dark Eldar are not psychically attuned for, I say obviously, you should know this. The Dark Eldar have basically bred psychic powers out of themselves. 
because they saw that that was one of the reasons why the fall happened because this all this all these murder orgies mixed with psychic powers wasn't a good thing so how can we just have the murder orgies without us all getting possessed by demons and eaten by the the, the, the prince of pleasure we get rid of the psychic powers and that seems to have actually worked but obviously they're still drained by slanesh but with no psychic powers in them there's no chances of like you know demonic demons coming into the universe and so on well much lesser chance obviously and uh, they've they cut themselves off to a, from the warp so they are actually very different from the craft world guys because they, they, they bred psychic powers out of them the elder the dark elder aren't psychic i mean you can argue about the homunculus maybe a little bit something's going on there but for the most part that's what they've done they don't have psychers they don't have farseers they don't have magic and all that sort of stuff they're they're very they're, they're the dark elder with just technology and um murder orgies so yeah <laughs> they're in a bit of predicament now because that means that they haven't got anyone who can operate the golden throne and what crowell realizes is they want because the, the last part of the deal is for the they've convinced the imperium to hand over some of the elements of the golden throne that have broken down and so on but from very close to the emperor and what they're hoping is that they're able to clone a copy of the Emperor. Uh, yeah, obviously Crowell puts it some, not verbatim this, but basically puts it like they're just going to create some meat beast, but with a shadow of the Emperor's soul to control, and they will control him and control this, this, this great edifice and use it themselves like the Emperor does to hold back the powers of the warp in the Eternity Gate, and that's what they want to happen here. That's messed up, right? And it also, there's a big issue in 40k, and I've tried to speak about this before, but, or, you know, and for all you, you, like, dang it, like, don't get me wrong, I'm a filthy atheist too, alright? You don't understand, the universe is not an atheist universe, it cannot be. Now, however you define you, this, right, because it's built on the idea that souls are real, you see? Now, the question I have, once you accept that, Mr. Atheist, accept that, you have to accept that that's the universe you live in, right? That's the rules of the universe, that's the metaphysics of the universe. That is reality. No matter what you might think, you might think, oh, the Imperium was trying to do Imperial truth and free humanity from religion and we're all going to live in Star Trek land. Whatever. What I'm telling you is, the universe functions on souls. Now, the interesting thing with the idea of cloning is, it clones a new soul. But is that an actual... The question I have is, and it, they leave it purposely vague, and they've done this on purpose, because you can't... <sighs> It takes the interest out to try and explain these things, and you can't really chat. It's like it's like really esoteric sort of spiritualism type shit. And because we haven't really got clones per se, although I find it a bit odd that we suddenly cloned Dolly the sheep, and you're telling me no one's done anything with that since. Come on! But what happens with a soul? In like you can you can argue in our universe and in our reality that perhaps the soul doesn't exist in the way. That most people believe it does if it does at all or it might not exist at all and that's where atheist bros you're probably right but you know assuming it in the in the 40k universe it very much does the gods eat souls souls are real souls as they're commonly understood are real in 40k so the question is how's that work with a clone because we've had clone primarchs before we've had they and are they an a, a, you know a fresh slate but colored by the personality and so on of the original person or just what's in their genetics does that it's a it's a template that's already marked on the soul even if the soul's starting from scratch they're 
not necessarily predestined, but they're, uh, what would be the word? They're um, predisposed to certain personality traits and certain attitudes and certain emotions and so on, right? Even though they're a blank slate, like the Fabius, in the Fabius Barn novels, the Fulgrim that's cloned obviously isn't the real Fulgrim, but he is a separate entity, completely separate. It's not like he's part of the original Fulgrim, who's Demon Primarch Fulgrim. He is his own thing, but Fabius sees that he is predisposed to his person, the, the original. He's gonna, he's gonna eventually end up very, very similar to the original, to the original Fulgrim. So, I mean, that's where it turns on him. But that's a whole other story. But um, you see what I mean? It's interesting. Is creating an, a new emperor the actual emperor? Is it actually a clone of the emperor from scratch, a new one? But with all the predispositions and so on that the original emperor has from birth. Again, it's a whole question of, you know, are you? Are, is it nature or nurture? I always side more. I think it's probably about like eighty percent nurture, twenty percent like the hardware you've got. You are what you are. You get me. You are what you are. You're predisposed to certain things, upbringing and uh, experience and so on can alter you. And you can have great radical changes in your personality due to events you've experienced and knowledge you've gained. I mean that's true. But, but, but. I think still the hardware is what predisposes you towards certain actions. But anyway, that's just my whole thing. It's an interesting area, it's an interesting area to explore. And I'm thinking 40k because we have it locked in solid that the soul does exist. So metaphysically, what does that mean? It's an interesting question, right? So anyway, this agreement is stopped. Uh, foiled, whatever you want to say. The custodians sacrifice themselves, ending this. The fabricated general of Mars is killed in this. They attempt to flee. Krell and um, Krell kills himself and this homunculus. And Spinoza's almost there. She's almost there, and she needs to get out of this because no one now, except for the Dark Eldar, and maybe not even all of them, because they're probably all dead at this point. No one knows that the Emperor's throne is broken now. Do you understand? No one knows this anymore. All of them are dead. All of this secret cabal who are doing this, they're all dead. They've all been killed one way or the other. Everybody who was in this negotiation in the webway, all the Dark Eldar involved. I mean, maybe some of the Dark Eldar do know. I, I, you know, this isn't going to be happening without Vect being involved. So he probably knows. So the Dark Eldar probably know, which is an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah? The Dark Eldar know the Empress Throne's messed up. Interesting, right? And they've almost got pretty much a completed golden throne but they've got no one to use it on so who, they're gonna have to find someone or they're gonna have to dive get rid of this whole plan but they need it's interesting right we need to know what's happening with the dark elder that's the interesting thing that's left open but for us for say for, for the imperium side of things she tries to get out she can't escape she's she's killed she doesn't get out she doesn't go back on she doesn't manage to get through the gate back to luna or anywhere his uh, his little servo skull does but it's sat on some jungle world somewhere uh, in the middle of nowhere and it doesn't look like it's a human world so that's out of, out of bounds no one in the inquisitorial authorities no one it appears in the mechanicum no one knows that the emperor's throne is broken <laughs> no none of the custodians now apparently anyway the emperor decides not to mention this or he doesn't know himself because he's em the emperor's mind is fractured into these different pieces and so on when he speaks to Gilliman, he, he, he fills him with this information. He doesn't really speak to him, obviously. He just gives him the psychic burst with orders and emotions and so on. 
that's all in the Dark Imperium book series. I won't go into that now. But no one knows that the Empress Throne's broken, which is insane. Absolutely insane. So uh, that's where we are at the end of this book. Amazing. And like I say, Chris Ray is just gifted enough to fill in all these little plot holes that some people wouldn't even notice because they're terrible writers and they don't understand human beings. The Spinoza character really grew on me. Fantastic character. She's really good. All the little actions. This series, these book series and the Watchers in the Throne ones are some of the most insightful and important 40k books out at the moment. They are clever, they are interesting, but not just that. They fill the holes in the lore that were left over from, shall we say, GW's ill-thought-out decisions with creating this new Dark Imperium type of arc, right? He and Dana um, and Guy Haley are doing the work of making this shit show make sense. And they're doing a fantastic job. They're doing a fantastic job. And this side of things is amazing. I recommend, I cannot recommend it enough. This has been a fantastic ending to this. I'm really happy with how it's turned out. It was so cool. The character himself is so good. Not just that, the single most, the single best short story, audio book thing, whatever that GW have ever produced is the interrogation of Salvor Lemontov. If you've never listened to that, I did a review on it when it came out years ago, but I don't think I did a very good job. I was just kind of, I knocked it out quickly. It is, it stands, I listened to it again recently. It stands out as one of the best audio productions they've ever done. One of the best short stories I've ever heard. One of the best, like as a standalone thing, it's amazing. The conversation they have with, between this, this, this rebel, this freedom fighter, is faithful to the emperor, a Robin Hood kind of character, and the inquisitor, inquisitor cow, this jaded inquisitor, who is doing what needs to be done because he knows the, the cure is as bad as the disease, so they can't, he would love to purge everybody, but he can't, so he has to work around the edges. It's such a good story. That's what this series has given us, some of the, the best moments in 40K lore, the best moments in 40K, storytelling, some of the best characters I've ever seen, best characterizations I've ever seen. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. And it's it's such a shame I don't think it gets the recognition it deserves because it is the best there is. And compared to, you know, I mean, again, just you compare this to some of the not very good stuff that Black Library is producing lately, and it's just night and day. It's insane, I can't believe it. Guy Haley as well, I'm gonna be going on with his Damocles golf thing, Dam Damocles golf? Um, <laughs> Indomitus Crusade book series. I haven't touched them yet because I just haven't had time. I'll be catching up with them soon. I reckon he's probably done the same for that as this. Not as good because he's not as good writer. He's very good. I like him a lot, but he's not as good as Chris Wright. And I'm looking forward to Chris Wright now possibly having the time to bring out a second book on the Lords of Silence. Again, one of the just standout surprise my, one of my favourite books in 40k ever. Like, I've never read a Chris Wright book that I didn't like. Right? I've never read a Chris Wright book that I didn't like. The only one I thought was a little bit off, because it felt rushed, was that novella about Valdor. I felt like it was really rushed, and I felt like that character, uh, the High Lord chick, um, I think she was fucking awful, and that's probably the worst character he's ever written. But I don't think that was his fault. I think it was supposed to be a full novel, and it got cut down to a novella and he, he didn't have time to create a believable and understandable character because she was an idiot. Like, what the fuck, you know? <laughs> no wonder they got tricked. No wonder. They were morons. Anyway, again, thank you all for watching. I will, I will leave it there. 
I cannot recommend this enough. It is too good, too interesting, too funny. I think I've recorded this all in one go, so apologies if it's very, very ranty. I just wanted to get this out there. I've got to get it done, get it out, because I've got to move on to other stuff and catch up with you guys. And so, you you know, we're all reading the same books at the same time again, because I'm way behind. This is amazing. Cannot recommend it enough. Fantastic end to this series. I've loved this series. It was so good. And I'm looking forward to more from the... I think he's going to carry... I mean, this is done now. All the characters are dead. So we'll see what where that gets picked up from or whether it's just left as a, as a, as a thing in the lore. The Emperor's phone is broken and no one knows about it anymore. But I think the Watchers in the Throne series is going to continue. So that'll be interesting to see what happens there. Again, looking forward to that. And again, hopefully we get a new... Lords of Silence book, book two, finally. That would be amazing, especially after Josh Reynolds left. I feel like Chris Ray is definitely the one doing the most work. Guy Haley as well, but like I say, I love Guy Haley's work. Like, The Great Work is probably one of my fan, my, my favorite books, right? The Belisarius Core thing, I don't know how he's done it. He's made me like Core. I know a lot of you agree. We all like Core now. We shouldn't, but Guy Haley did it. But um, Chris Ray is definitely the more gifted writer, I think. And I, I, I mean, no offense to anyone in that way. But he is just, he's probably the best writer at GW at the second. Guy Haley, close second. And obviously, you know, you got Aaron Dempsey-Bowden, you got um, Dan Abner, they're like up there as well. But they now write regular books. You know, Dan Abner's just messing about with his Sabbath World thing slowly. And, you know, the Penitent thing, obviously, that came out recently. But he's not like writing books all the time. And he's not involved in the sort of cut and thrust of the lore, advancing the lore, characterizations and stuff like this. He's just doing the Sabbath World thing, which is cool, but that's a whole separate thing. What I want is the new stuff. And Aaron Dembski-Bowden, I think he just works on iOS now. Anyway, I'm going to go now. Thanks all for watching. And uh, I'll stand by everything I've said. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, and if you're interested in picking this book up on this whole series, I will include a link in the description to Amazon. If you buy it through Amazon, I get a little taste. That helps me out. Or get the audio book. Take an Audible subscription out using the link as well. I also get a little taste there. And uh, yeah, that's a free... You get, you get it for a month and you get one free credit uh, or two free credits. I don't, I don't know. It depends. Sometimes they do offers, special offers. You think you get one free credit and you can buy the audio book. So please do that. That really helps me out. But otherwise, please like the video, subscribe, let me know in the comments what you thought. I'll be back again with more ranty reviews soon. Maybe I'll actually sit down and write out a script for them like I used to when I've got time. But in the meantime, this is what you get. Ta-ra. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>